episode 124, Why EHR Systems Have Failed Us and How Innovation Can Enable a Better Healthcare Future. Today, I speak with John Lin, editor and founder over at healthcarescene.com. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know. Talking. Relentlessly seeking value. First, John Lynn, editor and founder over at healthcarescene.com, and I dissect the why of why EHR systems haven't exactly managed to do what we need them to do to improve patient care. From there, things get a little more up-tempo. We start to confab about critical success factors moving forward and what are the must-haves for innovation to enable a better kind of healthcare future. My name is Stacy Richter, and this podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Welcome to Relentless Health Value, John. Glad to be here. Let's kick right in because you have been the editor and founder, let me make sure I get this right, of healthscene.com, writing about EHR and EMR and HIPAA and everything else that tends to trundle along with that train for something like 11 years now. We've published almost 11,000 blog posts over 11 years, and I've written about half of them. So it's really become a, a passion of mine, and using technology to improve healthcare is an important goal that I think we should all have. With that 11,000 article level of circumspection, let me ask you this. Why have EHR systems, I mean, basically failed us? And how can technology enable a different trajectory than the one we've been on thus far? <laughs> I think the real problem is people's understanding of how EHR systems evolved and how they came to be. They weren't originally developed to actually enable better patient care. That wasn't their goal at all. Their goal was really to create a digital storage system for what we'd previously been charting in paper records. So unfortunately, people's perception is this electronic world is going to somehow miraculously improve patient care, even though they were really just designed to store paper electronically. And so, you know, there's this disconnect between expectation and intention that happened in the EHR world, and that was accelerated by $36 billion of stimulus money from the government before they actually realized that the EHR systems may or may not improve patient care. What they were intended to do was to improve patient billing. What they were intended to do was to capture things electronically so that you were able to find the paper chart more easily. And it does those things, right? If you look at an EHR, it is a thousand times easier to read the notes in an EHR than it was on the paper world where we know how many jokes there were about doctors' handwriting. <laughs> well, now in the EHR world, that is no longer a problem. Now, there's other problems that have come from it, such as bloated notes and other challenges that we could talk about. But that is really the core of why EHRs have failed us, is that they weren't intended to do what so many people think they should do, which is improve patient care, make doctors more efficient, and be able to engage the patient. Those things were tacked on later as people said, oh, well, why isn't it doing this? 
Data is typically a springboard to patient care. You can't have good patient care unless you have the data. So obviously having the data is not enough. But did you see today there was a uh, study that came out in the one of the JAMA ophthalmology journals that said that data in electronic health records does not accurately reflect patient-reported symptoms. You know, like they did a study and they asked the patient what their symptoms were and then they checked in the EHR system and there was, let's just say, lots of <laughs> lots <Bad> of <laughs> discrepancies. So there's probably a, another issue here that the data that you capture so that you can bill someone accurately might not necessarily be the data that you capture. And maybe this is, maybe I'm spoiling what you're going to say next, but all data is not created equal. So is it a matter of, there's not the right data in there. Furthermore, it, it's not actionable or like... There's a couple of problems here. But let's start off first by saying that all the data in the paper chart wasn't accurate either. So, you know, let's compare apples to apples, right? And, you know, we have we can't compare against the ideal, which is perfect data. We have to compare against what it was previously. So paper charts had their own challenge. One challenge with EHRs and data is that it perpetuates bad information or misinformation. So if you enter in that someone is allergic to amoxicillin, well, that's going to perpetuate through multiple records, multiple doctors, and even if it's not true, it's really a challenge for us to update that information once it's in there. So I'm not you know, going to argue that EHR is perfect in its collection of data as well. But going back to the value part piece of it, if you want to get value out of the EHR, then you have to create the tools that leverage that data. Data in and of itself does very little to improve patient care. In fact, if it was just access to the data that was needed, paper charts would have been enough. We essentially had that data available to us in the paper chart, similar to what we have in the EHR world. Now, what could change things, right? What could extract benefit from the EHR? One is exchange of data between EHRs. That's something we didn't really have in the paper chart world, unless you got it from some faxes, but that wasn't really quick and that wasn't really effective and you didn't necessarily have all of the data. So if we could solve the interoperability problem so that data was shared between EHR vendors so you had all of the data for every patient from every provider and from every health system, that would improve patient care because more data available to the clinician at the point of care could improve care. The second piece is what tools can we provide the doctor to help him better process the data? I remember, uh, you know, this was probably seven, eight years ago, this doctor came on my blog and he said, the body of medical knowledge that's out there today is far too complex for the human mind to comprehend. Now, that's a, that's a really interesting concept, right? I mean, we have so much medical knowledge that the brain isn't capable of processing it all. And now we're layering on a whole bunch of other data from every specialist, from every lab, from every other source. Now we're adding in health sensors and other forms of data about your health situation. And we expect a doctor with his you know, human mind, which is limited, to try to process all of that. Well, they do an extraordinary job. Like I'm not trying to knock doctors at all. With what they're able to do, they've done amazing work. 
But this is where we need not just an EHR that stores data, but one that takes all of that data and the other data that's available about a patient and makes that actionable for the doctor. It provides them tools to understand what that data means. It provides tools that extracts the important data that they need to see and gets rid of all of that data that doesn't matter. So in some situations, the fact that you've taken 10,000 steps every day for the past six months may not be useful to the doctor. But in other cases where you're a diabetic patient and we need movement, or maybe you had a knee replacement and I want to know how many steps, that might be useful. And so we need our systems to be able to be built to understand which data is useful to the doctor and present it to them in a way that will actually improve the care that that doctor provides. That sounds kind of like a magic trick. What what things in reality are able to make that happen? I mean, we're talking about data visualization. Are we talking about artificial intelligence? Are we talking about, I don't know. Yeah, eventually it's going to be a mix of all those things. We'll even add in machine learning. So machine learning should go in there and say, okay, what of this data really matters and why does it matter? And it's going to get really complex really quickly because you might have a situation where this piece of data really matters to you. But in my case, it doesn't matter at all. There's elevated levels and that naturally happen of whatever, right? I'm, you know, I'm not a doctor, but you know, it needs to become that sophisticated to understand that maybe it's fine for you to have high levels. You know, I love the Lance Armstrong analogy, right? Lance Armstrong should have a heart rate that's very different than you or I because he was a premier athlete. Our systems need to understand that and need to become much more sophisticated in knowing about us personally so that it knows, is this a lab result? Is this weight result? Whatever piece of data you receive is it out of range for all of your contributing factors? And that, you know, I mean, let's be honest, this is not easy stuff. It is kind of like a magic trick, right? But when it happens, the doctors are going to say, I don't believe you. In fact, the first times they do it, they're going to say, show me the data. And so it's going to take almost a process of building trust with the doctor so that the doctor will trust the AI component or the machine learning that's making this possible. Because in, in the beginning, they're going to be extremely skeptical about whether this is accurate or not. But the interesting thing is, in many ways, they're doing that now. The doctors treat data with some skepticism when they read it in the chart. They look at it and say, okay, well, this is a baseline, so I need to maybe ask about this and verify that it's accurate. You know, if the chart says that you're allergic to amoxicillin, well, then I'm going to verify that that is the case. Or if it shows that you're on these five drugs, I'm going to be a little bit skeptical of that data and I'm going to ask you, are you on these five drugs? And so they already have that built into their systems and the way they treat patients. Given the fact that the physicians are already verifying the information and that study that just came out that said a lot of the information is not correct, do you feel like perhaps the doctor should be able to call up some sort of you know question form and there's five standard questions that need to get asked of information that needs to get verified for whatever condition and you know, there's some kind of best practice data points? So they're, they're entering the data that they're verifying and we're helping them do it. And then something gets processed at that point. 
the trend is more and more that their staff collect those data and verify those data. If the doctor's doing it, it's kind of a waste of time. So we need to push more and more that the other staff in the clinic are the ones collecting the data and verifying the data, which then becomes actionable to the doctor. So we need to make those data collection mechanisms much smarter too. For example, if I ask you, do you drink alcohol? Well, if you say no, I've never had it in my entire life, then I need to go with some other questions that apply to you. I don't need to ask you all of these other questions related to alcohol and any sort of issues that may cause for you. So the systems we use to collect data need to be smarter as well. But what's interesting, going back to kind of your first point, you know, why don't we do this and why don't we achieve some of this right away? And the real challenge of it all is that doctors are scared. We've created an environment where they should be scared because everyone's ready to sue at a drop of a hat. There's this culture in healthcare that people are just nervous. They're afraid of trying to push the boundaries. They're afraid of trying to rely on technology to help them serve the patient better because if they get it wrong, then they're going to be sued. And we've created this culture of fear that in many ways denies us innovation that should be happening. Let me ask you this, John. Why is it, and I know there's a company out there called Freesia that's that's doing this, collecting information from the patient themselves. You know, there's these little tablets and some other people yep. are doing them on iPads, but, you know, patient walks in, they get this tablet. You know, do you drink alcohol? That's a question on the tablet. It would seem like that would actually lessen the liability because it's a patient-supplied answer furthermore, you're not taking up time in the exam room. I mean, there was a company and they were actually sending the forms home. And and when I say forms, I mean online, bi-directional. I've seen one doctor who had the the Freesia tablet. Why do you feel like those things, whatever the solution or solution provider is, don't get more uptake, especially given what you just said? Sure. And a lot of it you can do right in the portal. They can fill out the forms right in the portal before they even get there. We all know that's more accurate because I'm not going to give you an effective health history or list of medications when I'm sitting in your exam room ready to get into your appointment, afraid you're going to come through the door and call my name and I'm not done with the forms. So I just rush through them and put down whatever information I can think of. And I often forget some. Whereas if I do it at home, in the calm of my home, with access to the resources I need, the quality of the information is better. So why then don't people do this? And there's a couple of reasons. But the biggest reason is that doctors don't get paid extra if they have the right info. So, I mean, certainly they want to treat you the right way. But, you know, these solutions, doing the patient portal, encouraging your patients to do it beforehand, buying the freezer solution, etc., they cost money. And does that increase their bottom line in any way? No, it doesn't have a direct connection to revenue at all. It creates a better patient experience. And so I guess you could argue that with a better patient experience and better patient care, you'd get more patients. But unfortunately, in healthcare today, one, most doctors have enough patients. In fact, they have too many patients. You have to wait three months to get an appointment for certain specialties in certain areas, right? So they don't need any more patients. In fact, they'd like less patients if they could. (laughs) Second problem is how do you know that that doctor's giving you better care or not? We don't. 
we don't have a good way to measure if that doctor is a high-quality doctor or if they're not. And all of the rating sites that are out there, and there's a lot of them, that rate doctors are only rating the customer service component of it. And so they're rating how good was their bedside manner? How good was their check-in? Did they have a nice lounge? Did they have a fish tank that made my kids happy? Right? I mean, they're, they're rating these things that don't really influence care. And so, unfortunately, their business as a healthcare organization, as a medical practice, is not influenced by creating this great experience that gets the right data that helps them better treat you as a patient. Now, the shift to value-based care could and we hope we'll change that. Yeah, that's exactly what I was going to say, that if you fix a reimbursement amount, if you say this is going to be the price of something, then it's kind of economics 101 and you're incenting. Some of the socialist countries learned this the hard way. You're, you are not incenting any sort of improved product because you're going to get paid the same regardless. So given all this and, and given the inexorable rise of, of value-based care. You know, it's a train that's left the station. Who do you think the big winners are going to be now as opposed to previously? So when you're looking at value-based care, I think the key for choosing the winners in value-based care are going to be those companies that are great at understanding the impact of the work they're doing. So in the past, we rewarded what I would call hoop jumpers. Those that were really good at jumping through the hoops, the reimbursement hoops, the government regulation hoops, the meaningful use hoops, they got paid because they jumped through the hoops and that was how they got paid. In the future, I think the key is going to be how well can you track the impact you're having on patients? So that's going to require you to understand who your patients are how much they're going to cost, and what you can do to lower that cost. So it's going to require an organization to really understand the data around their patients and understand their patients so that then they can make improvements for them. Healthcare is kind of the very definition of the law of unintended consequences, which is particularly true with meaningful use. You know, as you said, <laughs> it, it incented activity. How many pieces of patient education can you give out? Check that box. Now that we're moving, as as you said, to impact-based care, but it's still, you know, I heard someone say the other day that we don't practice evidence-based medicine in this country. We practice reimbursement-based medicine. <laughs> so... <laughs> There are certain impacts that are going to be quantified, and there's certain impacts that aren't. Do you see any sort of strange and unusual consequences that uh, you, you see are perhaps inevitable that's going to come out of this? Yeah, well, certainly. Uh, we're still trying to figure out how to reimburse value-based programs in a way that makes sense and actually improves care. Plus, I, I still always go back to when I heard Farzad Mosashari, who's the former uh, national director of IT. So he was in charge of all the healthcare IT initiatives for the government. And it, I heard him say this, and it really resonated with me. He said, we can't have one foot in value-based reimbursement and one foot in fee-for-service. You can't, they can't coexist, basically. And so I, I look at that and I say, okay, well, if they can't coexist, which I, I largely agree with him, it's challenging to do a fee-for-service world and a value-based reimbursement world at the same time and maybe impossible. But if that's the case, how do we turn off one switch and turn on the other 
and how is that going to play out? And so when I look at that, I say, okay, well, we've started with some programs like CCM. We started with uh, accountable care organizations, ACOs. CCM is chronic care management codes, which it has, you know it really does have one foot in fee for service and one foot in value based care, trying to help organizations in a fee for service world start to think from a value based care mindset. And I think they're good programs, but we're going to have the unintended consequences, back to your original question, of many people who really are just trying to game the system. If you look at the CCM codes, you see that with organizations that are like, okay, well, this requires me to spend this much time with that patient. And so I'm going to put it there, but I'm, you know, and I'm going to put in the time and I'm going to meet the letter of the law and get my CCM payment without actually moving the needle on the care that that patient received or improving the chronic conditions that they have. Yeah. And I totally get the let's just say, uneasy bedfellows of value-based care and FFS. And I was talking to a physician leader recently who said he walked out of one meeting and the goal of that meeting was to try to get more heads in beds. And then he walked into the next meeting and they're trying to get heads out of beds. (laughs) So I don't know how any, even the most skilled economist, can ensure that the value-based care incentives in some way trump the ones that an institution could receive if they go hog wild with FFS. So I feel like exactly to your point, we got to minimize this lag time. Do you, relative to technology or anything else that you, that you can think of, what do you think the best way is to minimize the lag time to like move this fast while all the technology needs to get ramped up and stuff? Like this isn't something that, you know, you can just turn a switch overnight exactly like you just said. Certainly, it takes time. Although the, there are some promising developments that are going to happen quickly. And once the market finds these type of solutions, the market actually works relatively quickly. For example, when they gave the meaningful use money, people were all over it. It changed the market overnight. I mean, I literally had people doing crazy stuff because they wanted the government money. I mean, they saw that opportunity and they started acting totally irrational. And so it was amazing how when you present the right model, the actions happen quickly and in a surprisingly effective way. Now, the problem is, did it incentivize the right things and did it inc- or did it incentivize the wrong things? You know, that's kind of a discussion for another day. But I think there are models that do actually lower the cost of care and actually provide great reimbursement for the physicians as well. I saw one great example. It was called uh, IRIS. I think that it stands for Intelligent Retinal Imaging Systems, which is an awful name, so it's good that they call it IRIS technology. <laughs> but what it does is it diagnoses uh, diabetic retinopathy, and it allows the doctor to do it in the exam room itself. Mm-hmm. Now, if you look at that, you know you have, you have to dive into the diabetic world. You have these annual exams that screen you for various things. One of those screenings is, is for diabetic retinopathy to see if you're going to basically lose your eyesight. Now, all of these exams and screenings that you need done for the diabetes – could be done in the exam room except for the eye exam. You had to refer it out to an ophthalmologist and you'd go to the ophthalmologist and get it done. But what would happen is a large portion of people wouldn't go and do it. So what Iris did is they created this exam that you can do in the 
medical office with the general medicine doctor that's doing your regular diabetes screening, mm -hmm. and you're able to get this done immediately. And through this technology, they actually get reimbursed for it. So the doctor loves it because he's getting paid to do the screening and exam right there. The patients love it because now they avoid becoming blind. But this is all great because they essentially screen for it in the doctor's office. They lower the cost of patient care. They lower the complications for the patient. And the doctor gets paid to actually do it. So that's where fee-for-service world works good and you're lowering the cost of care. The trick here is going to be to make sure that the incentives push people to take the first step along a path, which is known because we've figured this out, to ultimately get to very good value-based care, as opposed to what happened with meaningful use, which was incenting, you know, something that was kind of like off to the left. And it had people dragged off of the actual intended course. And now I'm, I'm going to bring up something that you had said at one time earlier. Do you see tech as an opportunity or, or things like Iris, for example? It seems to me that that technology redesigns the way we work. You know, it redesigns an ongoing process. It's an improvement to the way that we practice medicine. And I know that's something that you had said was a really important critical success factor. You have to remember tech solves nothing. What tech does is it enables new workflows. It enables new opportunities. It enables new opportunities for care. It enables new understanding. So tech is only an enabler. You can't just say, oh, I implemented this tech and it solved all of my problems, <laughs> right? So, I mean, that's what I think you have to always remember. Let, let's not give tech too much credit for what it needs to accomplish, right? You still have to have the workflows. You still have to have the business models that make sense to pay for it. You still have to have the clinical understanding. You know, Another good example of this is in the data, right? It's great that we have all this data stored now in EMRs, now in data warehouses, et cetera, et cetera, right? It's stored. In fact, I would say doctors are overwhelmed with data at this point. So what we need now is the tools that go through that data and make it actionable. And I think it should be actionable on multiple levels. First, it should provide the doctor insights in how they can provide better care. That is a powerful thing, and we kind of talked about that in the beginning. How do you better enable the doctor to care for the patient? The second way we need to use data, and this is where tech comes in because tech enables this. This wouldn't have been possible in the paper chart world, and that's why it never happened before and why it's now a possibility. Tech can enable you to know who are the patients that need you most. Tech can enable you to know who are the patients that you can impact the most so that you can improve their care, so that you can lower the cost of healthcare for everyone, including the patient, so that you can ensure that they're complying with the things that you're doing. So tech can enable you to work with the patients who need you the most and who can actually bend the cost curve of healthcare. And that's what's so exciting about technology and about where we are with all of this data is if we do it right, we'll know who to go to and that we can impact care by working with these very specific populations. And that goes back to something that I have elucidated in numerous podcasts, the idea that productivity is focusing on things that matter. 
when you choose to do something, you're equally choosing what you're not going to do. So, you know, if you choose to focus on a patient who may not need any help, then you're foregoing the opportunity to spend that time on an impactable patient. So I, I definitely see what you're saying. So just kind of in summary, we were talking about the critical must-haves um, moving forward. So I have jotted some notes here. You were talking about at the top of the our conversation to make sure that we have exchange of data so that we have a robust data set relative to any given patient. Then the tools to process that data to provide insights so that the data is actionable for the patient sitting in front of the physician at that moment, but then also to ensure that for the patients not sitting in front of the physician, <laughs> they, get <there>. <laughs> they get there. Exactly. Did we miss anything else in this, uh, this excellent list that we are compiling? So I'd add one more as kind of the cherry on top. It's it's great that we have the data that we need and we exchange it. And it's great that we understand how to treat the patient better and, and which patients to treat. But I think we also need to spend a lot more time on what I call the behavioral health side of things, which is understanding how do I engage that patient in a way that will cause them to change their behavior. And, and really, for me, I call back to a company called StellaCare with a, a lady named Melissa McCool. She's, she blows my mind and what she's doing with this because she comes from that psychologist, social worker mindset that says, it's great that we have the data and it's great that we understand who we need to work with. But what do we tell them once we figure that out? And that's what she's working on. And that's what's so powerful you can prescribe whatever you like if the patient doesn't follow through. It's kind of meaningless. Definitely. I thank you so much for being on the podcast today, John. Definitely. Thanks for having me and uh, happy to join you anytime. Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at RelentlessHealthValue.com. If you visit the website, RelentlessHealthValue.com, you will also find a complete listing of all of the shows that we have published thus far with leading entrepreneurs and executives in the healthcare space today. Another cool feature is, you know, you can subscribe to the show so that every week the episode is automatically sent to you so you don't have to remember to go to the website to download it. Thanks so much for listening.